Hello and welcome to the University Guide Podcast, a podcast that aims to share knowledge and expertise about topics of relevance for international university applications. I'm David Hawkins. This episode is the first of a three-part series on US standardised testing, the SAT and the ACT as they're better known. Now these two tests generate a huge amount of commentary, news articles, social media and appearances on TV and film. In this group of podcasts, I want to provide some clarity on the issues surrounding the SAT and ACT, particularly in the international context. I've tried to speak to those who are really experienced in the nuances of some of these issues and how international applicants to the United States experience them. In this episode, the focus is on SAT and ACT prep in the context of the Far East. My guest is a highly experienced tutor for the SAT and the ACT working with students and schools preparing to sit the tests. I asked him to give an overview of the process international students face when thinking about these tests and then delve into a little more detail. I hope this is a useful interview for anyone considering the SAT or the ACT. So in this episode of the University Guy, the focus is on the SAT and the ACT and particularly preparation for it in the international context. Um, I'm delighted that my guest is Jeremy Craig, who's based in Singapore. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure to speak to you this evening, or, the, or afternoon for you, I guess. Well, so, saying it's the international world, time zones are removable things. So good afternoon, sure. good evening, good morning, whatever it was that people used to say on the Truman Show. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So Jeremy, can you tell me a little bit more about your, your company and your work out there in Singapore? Okay, well, I, I started teaching SAT prep when I was a young undergraduate at Columbia University in New York back in the early 90s. Um, for a company called Test Takers. Um, I moved to Singapore 20 years ago doing something completely different, and I realized that, that there was a good demand for test prep, or quality test prep anyway, in Southeast Asia. So since that time, I, I've been the, sort of the, the franchise holder for, for Test Takers USA for, for the agent operations. So I, I've been involved in test prep one way or the other for about 25 years now. And we do programs primarily with the international schools in the region, but we, we of course, also do individual tutoring and do, do programs open to the general public. Great stuff. I think one of the reasons why it's, I wanted to, to kind of have you on is that relationship with the schools is all important. Um, sure. For yep. a lot of the listeners to the podcast who work in UK schools, international schools, to something I would I would definitely flag up. It's really good if you can have a relationship with a test prep provider who will come into your school, who will work with your students. It makes everything so much easier. Yes, I, absolutely. I, I think one of the reasons we're very successful with the schools is that unlike most other providers in that space of test prep, we don't do what you do, David. We don't we don't get involved in the actual placement advising. Um, the argument being that the, the schools generally do a pretty good job of that themselves, and they don't generally want to bring in people who give conflicting advice. Absolutely, and that, that's probably the conversation you and I can have offline about some of those conflicts that sometimes can occur. Yeah, absolutely, sure. Great stuff. So let's delve straight in and talk about the test that I probably most students who, who come to think about this will, will start off with, which is the SAT. Yep. Okay, so, well, 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 okay, well, where do I start with this, really? So, so the SAT was started about 80 years ago. Um, in New York, in, in the States, to, to help the Ivy League schools, which is just athletic conference, sort of vet their students a little bit. Um, and that grew and grew and grew after the war. And now, like it or not, it's more or less de facto reti- required by most American universities that are remotely competitive. Um, it's basically four sections, reading, writing, math, uh, with an optional essay that we can speak about if there's time. And you should generally take it towards the second half of 11th grade, and it provides a standard yardstick for universities in, in, in assessing students. Um, it's not the most important thing by any means, 
But with so many different education systems in the States, and indeed so many different education systems internationally, it, it provides a useful metric for universities just to compare students like, like to like. Great. And I think the key point you put up in there is obviously, as you said, there's massive diversity within the U.S., um, mm-hmm. So, that, you know, without there being sort of nationally government-led external tests, as many countries do, the SAT originally started kind of to, to compensate for that issue. Exactly. And the SAT, importantly, is, is non-governmental. It's, it's the college board, which is a membership organization that's made up of the universities that pay their, their, their fees every year to make the organization that then administer and, 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 and sort of look after the test. Right, so the SAT was the first one, it was the big beast, and it's mm-hmm. you know, the one you hear people refer to the most. Of However, course, yep. for, for people who are listening to this who are completely new, there's also the ACT. Of course, on the ACT, or American College Test, is something that I wasn't even familiar with back in the 80s and 90s when I was going through this process myself. It was a bit geographic. Uh, the SAT was the coast, and the ACT is based in Iowa, and it was predominantly what, what, what the test was administered and given to kids in the Midwest. Um, over the last 10 years or so, there's been a bit of a convergence where the ACT has been very active in marketing themselves, both domestically in America, but also internationally. Uh, the SAT has sat on their laurels a little bit and, and made some missteps. And now both tests are roughly a parity for the number of people taking them. It's a bit of a arms race every year in terms of how many testers are for each one. Now, overall, though, the, the tests are remarkably similar, at least domestically, in that they, they test roughly the same things, reading, writing, and mathematics. Great stuff. And, and just probably for, for clarity for listeners, the vast, vast majority of U.S. universities will accept SAT and ACT completely equally. I would say any university that accepts the ACT would accept the SAT without prejudice and vice versa. Great stuff. Um, if, if they recommended one or the other, it would be lawsuit time and that they don't want that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess then the key question and where someone with your expertise can really help to guide a family is there are two tests. Which one should you do? Okay, well, I mean, the, the basic advice is to sit down and maybe the summer before your second to last year, so going to IB1 or first year of A-levels or 11th grade, depending on the system, and sit down at the kitchen table and take one of each on, on, on subsequent days and then score it yourself, which are, there are scoring guides and official mock tests available on websites, and then just look at the official convergence tables and see which one you're slightly stronger in and then go that route. Um, a couple provisos there. A lot of test prep people get people to come in and take their own practice test to see how they go, but it's very easy to, to kind of game those tests and make it look like students are scoring lower than they really are. Nice. So I really recommend they use the official tests. I mean, on the College Board website, there are eight tests available scotch-free, and on the ACT, there's one computer-based test and then one or two paper-based tests that, that are the real deal, and you should use those rather than spend any money, certainly taking a, a mock exam just as a dry run at a test prep center. Great. I mean, for, for me, most of my students are obviously at schools in the UK, and the vast majority of them are doing A-levels, which obviously, mm-hmm. to me, steers them towards the ACT. I'm interested in, in the context of, of Asia, what kind of key things might, based on students' background and their educational history, might skew them one way or the other? Well, the, the common belief is that if you're strong in science, I believe that a lot of your A-level kids would be doing the, the, the science load, uh, then the ACT is, quote, easier, um, and you score better on it. I find that to be a bit of a fallacy, frankly, David, and, and I, I find students that are exceptional in science, they tend to score about the same on the SAT and the ACT. So um, the main issue for me, with giving advice of which test to take, is availability. Right. And the ACT has had some profound issues in rolling out through the computer-based format internationally. 
And as a result, both myself and pretty much all the guidance counselors I know, at least in the Asian region, are basically telling people to take a really hard look at themselves if they want to do the ACT because the SAT is much more of a known quantity. And that there, there haven't been any sort of fiascos recently with, with the SAT, whereas ACT has really fallen down a couple times in different markets in terms of canceling tests the day before or moving a kid from a Friday test date to a Saturday test date or from Saturday to Friday or you know, t- t- taking away scratch paper in the middle of the, the, the math section, et cetera. This is just a bit of an issue. So I would say content-wise, um, science-heavy students would probably favor the ACT a little bit. The math in it is slightly harder. Um, but, but that said, you have a lot less time on the math. There is the science section on the ACT that really isn't that science heavy. It's, it's really just reading charts and graphs. Okay. Okay. And you, so you hinted at there kind of some of the format differences that are coming this year. And I think the UK has had some issues with this, but nothing like some of the global ones with the world of computer based testing. Could you kind of just give a quick summary then of what now is. Yeah, a, a very different testing situation for student who's going to take the ACT and the student who's going to take the SAT. Okay, let's, let's start with the more familiar SAT. You show up on a Saturday morning, you, you, you register, sit down, and they give you a test booklet um, that you give back at the end, and you get a test uh, answer sheet, and you a- enter all your answers with a number two pencil onto the sheet and submit it, and hopefully it takes a little bit under four hours. Um, the ACT is moving towards a computer-based test. Now, importantly, that's not computer-adaptive like other tests, like the GRE, GMAT, and TOEFL are, it's computer-based. So you, you have an appointment, you go to a test center, and you sit down in front of a computer. Um, at that computer, you're not allowed scratch paper. They give you actually a tablet, like a, a whiteboard tablet, A4 size, that you use that with a, with a whiteboard marker. And then you, you take a test on an online platform that you then answer the questions one by one and go all the way through it. And then the advantage to computer-based is obviously you get your score back a little faster, but one potential disadvantage is that it's slightly easier to game and that they're giving the test on Friday morning, Friday afternoon, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, and they can't help but be repeating tests, which is an issue that we really don't want to get into too much. Right. But the last thing you want to do is take a test that they found out that some organization in China knew was coming, and then all of a sudden the only solution to that is just to cancel the entire testing. Yeah, which well, is a little bit of a fiasco. Well, I know it's the issue that in your part of the world with the SAT has been going for, for a while. And anyone who's interested in checking it out, if you just, just find the, the Reuters articles. Yeah, yeah the Reuters articles. I, I, I fed a lot of information on those guys, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so students decided that they're going to take ST or ACT. Um, are there any ways in which that might be different in terms of the way the scores are going to be used when they are sent to universities? Um, the only slight difference is that the, the ACT, if you, some schools, if you take the ACT, they waive requirements for SAT subject tests. Um, so if you do the ACT and the school requires subject tests, you have to look on the school website. It might say you don't need to send a science subject test, if the case may be. Um, that said, my take with subject tests is anyone who has a chance of getting into a school that requires subject tests wouldn't need any help with subject tests. But in terms of usage by the school, there really is, is no difference. Um, with both tests, they offer something called score choice, whereas if you take the test multiple times and submit multiple scores to the university, most universities would accept the highest combination of scores therein. Correct. Now, some, some of the most competitive universities want to see everything and consider everything, but the overwhelming majority of schools will, will, will have that score choice option. Great. And that's where your work interacts with mine in terms of getting the test and doing well in the test is half the battle, but actually mm-hmm. yeah, how you use those scores and who you send them to. And, and as you said, different universities having different requirements as to what they need to see is, is also a, a part of this. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and there's, I mean, people try to maintain a you know central database with all this information. The only way to find out for sure is to look on the school websites. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, hit- and, and they keep that updated. Yeah. You hinted there as well also about SAT subject tests. Do you, do you mind mm-hmm. just giving a brief overview about, about how those are different and what students need to be oh, aware of? Okay, well, well the, the SAT and the ACT are both very broad tests. Again, reading, writing, mathematics, and grammar, obviously. Um, the, the subject tests are in specific uh, academic disciplines such as chemistry, physics, uh, biology, um, modern Hebrew, Latin, um, all, all the, the modern languages as well. And the most competitive American schools might require two. Georgetown, I think, still requires three. Um, in addition to an SAT score, or again, like I spoke earlier, um, maybe maybe just two or one if you do doing the ACT instead. Um, those tests are an hour long. You can take up to three of them on a given test date. And internationally, you actually have more opportunities to take the subject test than you do the actual big dog than the SAT. Um, and in general, like I said, if you really are a super strong student, the SAT subject tests are easier easier than IGSCs, easier than an IB standard level, and they shouldn't be anything to worry about. Okay. And there is obviously just an issue there, though, that the SAT subject test and the SAT can be on the same day, and you can't take both tests on the same no, day. No, you can't, do, but you, can, you can't do both on the same day. So, so I mean, what, what you would generally do is take subject tests on a test date where the SAT itself is not available. Great. And for, for students who are, who are listening to this and maybe in parts of the world, um, not so much like, like mine or yours, where there is, is lack of availability to test centers. Should they do some research into where they can test on and which days they can test before choosing yeah, which way to I, go? I, I, I mean, I, absolutely. You, you want to sort of, first of all, talk to your guidance counselor. Hopefully you're at school with someone who's plugged into our, our network and ask questions about that. Um, you basically want to, if, if it is an issue that you live somewhere that's quite remote, um, you just want to take whichever test is closest to home and easiest to get to. Yeah. You know, it, again, it, it, like I say many times, if you do well on one, you're going to do well on the other. Um, and you, you, you want to f- take the test that's easiest for you to get to on a Saturday morning or a Friday morning, if the case may be, with the ACT. Great stuff. Okay, so students gone through this process. They understand what they're doing. They've worked out which test is, is going to be going. They, yeah, they're determined to do this. When should they start to think about taking these tests? Um, I think that a common mistake, particularly in Asia, um, is to, to, to get on this train too soon. And, and start wanting to do the SAT towards the end of maybe 10th grade or, you know, end of O-levels or the, the end of whatever they do before the IB. Um, really, the all the advice points to taking the test for the first time at the earliest, maybe in the first, in, in, the, in the very end of the first, the, the very end of 11th grade calendar year. So in December of 11th grade or that failing, taking it in March or May or, or the, the equivalent ACT test dates is really the best time to take it. These tests, like it or not, they teach what kids are learning in school anyway. And test scores will float up naturally over time. And I always get kids could come to me in 12th grade, we've already taken the test six times, and mom's having to take it again and again and again. And ultimately, diminishing returns kick in, and you're just not going to score much higher. Um, if these tests were able to be conquered by sheer brute force and mugging and studying for six months or a year, then every kid in Asia certainly would have a near-perfect score. <laughs> and, the, and the test wouldn't be that good. The, the analogy I, I use is, is a sporting analogy. I, I play golf to a fairly high level. But no matter how many lessons I get, I'm not going to play on tour. And similarly, kids tend to get to their maximum SAT score after proper prep, and an extra 10 or 20 points on the SAT or one or two points on the ACT probably don't make that much of a difference when all that time could be better spent, you know, playing tennis or varsity this or doing other activities. Yeah, I mean that's that's. So a I, good I would point. say, yeah. Well, yeah, just, just answer your question more succinctly. I would say the second half of your second to half last year should be the first time you take it. And then you have opportunities in your back pocket to take it again if necessary. Right. And so and you mentioned it there, and you, you saw the parental pressure, and I, and I understand that 
the context a lot of your market is actually quite different and, and focus on on hitting these scores but you look at you know equivalent standardized tests around the world you, know, you talk about the Gaokar, the indian curriculum sure. or, or a levels and yep. ib you know and a lot of university entrance systems are based on if you hit this grade level you yep. get in and if you don't yep. then you don't that can be quite confusing for families when they're looking at sat and act where you know as you're say, you just said there you've hit a good enough level now go and do something else and a lot of the guidance sometimes i'm giving to families is actually if you've got a good score and then you take it another two times to try and get better that can potentially be off-putting to a university because they yeah have more- uh, absolutely and, and, and I see I see test fatigue kick in and, and kids start to resent the test and the scores actually go down um, you know and I, I people email me saying oh my son only scored a fifteen forty what should he do and my response to that is he should do anything else other than SAT because he's good on that front he should work in other areas um, you're absolutely right that a lot of schools particularly with the IB and, and the Gaokao and the Indian system you need a certain score to get into a certain faculty um, that said those those tests are the product of two years of hard graft um, that are academically oriented and that you take on numerous occasions, not just one day, and they represent two years of hard work, whereas the SAT and ACT ultimately are, are how clever are you for three and a half hours on a Friday or Saturday, and the universities understand that, and there are no universities in America, to my knowledge, that have a minimum score for admissions except for student-athletes, and then the, the, the score is quite low. Um, where that gets into trouble, certain places like Korea, Japan, Taiwan, sometimes even even Singapore is guilty of this. They say you need to get a, say, 1,300 to get in. So yeah. if you get a 1,290, you're not. If you get 1,300, you're in. And that's just sort of idiotic, and it gets the whole sort of thrust of the, the, what the tests are meant to do. But sadly, that, that's just the way it is. Yeah. So I guess the big message I'm hearing from all you're saying on this is actually – it, before you really kind of go near the tests and start preparing, you really need to work out first, what is the strategy? Where am I targeting? And, and based on that, what do I need to achieve and when do I need to achieve it by? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the first half of 11th grade, you shouldn't be stressing too much about universities, but or first year of A-levels or IB, but you should have kind of, you know, your, your wish list on the radar. And then you should have the resources and hopefully your school at least has the resources to tell you, okay, students from my school who've been accepted at University XYZ, their median SAT scores are whatever the case may be. Or normally they, they, they couch it of saying our accepted students are between the, the 25th and 75th percentiles are in that range. And then you, you've, you've maybe taken a PSAT or PREACT and you kind of can predict based on that what your SAT score probably is going to be roughly. And then you're going to know if that, that school is in the right ballpark or not. That right. said, you can have a perfect SAT score and, and strike out and not get in. I mean, I, I, I had a kid about five years ago who had a perfect SAT. Harder, he got a perfect IB result, and he got rejected from Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Columbia, and Stanford. But he got into University of Chicago, pretty good school. Yeah. He did economics, and now he's a hedge fund manager. So he, he did great. But just the, the, he was just applying racially. He was the wrong race from the wrong school, et cetera, et cetera. And all those other factors went in. Whereas if, if he had those results from applying to a school that was just hard-nosed based on numbers, he, he would have he walked in. Yeah. And as you're saying, it's where, where your work and my work interact quite nicely and that the kind of two different parts of the puzzle that have to mm-hmm. kind of be, be viewed in the whole. Great. So students gone through all this kind of stuff and, you know, listeners will have heard from what you said that, you know, a few times you said to students, actually, you know, don't take more prep, don't get test fatigue. So, so we'll know that you're coming from this from a point of view where the students' best interests are at heart. But students do need to take these tests seriously. Of course. And given that, yep. how best should they prepare to take them? Um... The best training, if you're talking about 10th, 11th grade, or 10th, 9th, 10th grade anyway, read more. Um, kids just don't read magazines or books like they used to, or you know, back in our day. 
Um, and just sitting down and reading for 45 minutes to an hour, say every other day, something like The Economist magazine that, that has articles that are roughly the same length as they, as they would encounter on the SAT and ACT, is, is just the best pre-planning. Um, that, working hard in school, paying attention in math class, making sure you don't fall asleep somewhere, hit your head in rugby. And then after that, you pick the test date that you want to hit, and then you kind of count back six to eight weeks. And either if you're going to do your own prep, then you, there's plenty of online prep with the Khan Academy, and, and Pearson's getting into it with that ACT now. There's heaps of books on the market, though I will say the, the official guides are really the only strong books, in my opinion. And then you, you, you want to prepare in the six to eight weeks leading up to an individual test date. It's a bit like training for a race or something. You want to put on the Rocky music. You train, train, train. <laughs> you, you, you take the test. You do well. You drop the mic. You walk out. And hopefully you never have to worry about the stupid thing ever again. Um, people coming to me looking for test prep nine months in advance, one year in advance. It, it's just the, the tests don't work that way. And you would reach your maximum score very, very quickly indeed. And then you'd just be stuck there and probably go down. And that's one of the reasons I don't do t test prep over the summer because you aren't able to take the test until so September for the ACT or October for the, the SAT. And any test prep you do in June, July is probably going to be out the window um, comes come September, October. So, again, you, you want to do like an eight-week plan leading up to test date and then see how you go. And But always leave yourself a couple other test dates in your future just in case. You know, You might wake up with food poisoning. It might sort of, heaven forbid, be a test cancellation or something. You don't want to leave everything to the very last year. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess potentially, just to, to sort of count that a little bit, if a student is studying a curriculum that actually, you know, potentially there are going to be some gaps. You know, I think of a student who's done the, you know, the British system and actually maybe is sitting in their, their second year of A-levels and hasn't looked at maths for two years. In those <clears> circumstances, might, yeah, might there be yeah. some sense doing a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm actually I'm work, working with some kids in that situation out at the, the British system school here, and their math is quite poor. So um, in that case, I, I would say if you're going from A-levels into a non-STEM-oriented mix, then I, I would say to take it maybe the first half of 11th grade when that math is still relatively fresh. And then you might be able to take it again the first half of your 12th grade and then super score and use a higher reading writing score with your higher math score. Great, yeah. So... You know, given all of this, and, and you know, obviously, I, I'm part of a company that we help students with the college council side of this. You, you say work with a company doing the test prep of it. Yeah, obviously, we would say this, but I think our, you know, listeners will know that we both come at this from point of view with with student success at the centre. Mm -hmm. Is is there value to students using specialists? And I, I guess we both know the answer to that question. But why is there value to students using a specialist like like test takers or others to help them prepare for this? I, I think a lot of it is the students who are uber motivated, you're one in a thousand, who can do everything at home and are going to sit down and do Khan Academy without mommy saying they're prodding them every 10 minutes. Um, they don't need to test prep. And I, I, I turn business away every week, David, as some kid, who, oh, oh I, I scored a 1490, I need test prep. No, you don't. You just need to do a couple practice tests and you're good. The utility in test prep in particular is learning new ways and practices and new approaches to approach the questions. And I'll be honest with you, we're the most effective with the kids that aren't scoring super, super high because they have more holes to fill. So if you learn new ways to approach the math questions, doing things backwards, doing things sideways, plugging in numbers of your own, et cetera, that has great gains for the math sections of both the ACT and the ACT. On the grammar in particular, I mean, students' grammar right now, generally speaking, is appalling. I've got kids who don't know what a noun is. And they, they've been in international system school for, for you know, 11 years. So just lear learning the parts of speech, learning the basic errors, subject verb agreement, pronoun agreement, subjective pronouns versus objective pronouns. There's probably about 15 little grammar tips. That w w once they get it in their head, that's 100 points right there. 
And having the structured format to do it in a group environment that gets a little bit competitive, and, and, and that way it's, it's, it's excellent training for them. Um, another sports analogy I use is that you, if you hit a ball, with a, if you hit a tennis ball against a wall forever, you're going to get a little bit better. But if you have a really good coach, you can get better much, much quicker. And that's where, that's where I see the, the role of good test prep as. Great stuff. Obviously, I'm, I'm having a, a, a conversation in kind of this series I'm doing on the SAT with with a company that specialises in working kids in the in the UK. But for families all around the world, when they are, you know, the, maybe they listen to this podcast and they're getting a sense of right, okay, we need to take this test and this is the overview. It probably is one of the you know the biggest industries linking to the profession of helping kids apply to college in the states is test yep. prep. How mm-hmm. on earth does someone sitting in you know anywhere around the world? go through the process of choosing someone to help their student prepare and work out who's good and who's not? I'd say phone up your guidance counselor at the school. Phone up the high school. Um, yeah. The high schools normally can't recommend one com- country, a company rather, o- over another on their website or openly. But if you phone them up and say, hey, w- w- which ones are the good guys? They'll tell you. Um, word of mouth is huge in our business, as, as is, is yours as well, David, I'm sure. Um, you wanted to just ask around old, older brothers and sisters, what have they used? Uh, what do you, what you hear from somebody? And it's important also to find people who know what they're doing. It's, it's so easy to find math whizzes fresh out of school who can do calculus falling out of bed, but do they know how to teach? Uh, have they been through the SAT themselves? Do they, 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 do they know the overall process of getting into American universities, et cetera? You, you want all that background or, and so kids understand the context of everything. Um, and just because you went to a good university, it doesn't mean you can teach anything. So, so you, you want people with, with a bona fide track record who ideally are working with schools already because that shows that the schools trust them that, that, that can get you good results. Now, in some places, there are no companies out there with, that, that are good, I'll be first to admit. Um, in that case, there are, if you have very deep pockets indeed, there are people who do online Skype-type tutoring for an arm and a leg. Or ultimately, if, if you are motivated enough and living somewhere with no viable test prep, the online options, which are generally speaking free or very cheap, are very good, are decent as well if you know how to properly employ them. Great. And I would say if, if anyone is listening to this and you are in a part of the world where you, know, you don't think there is any expertise or potentially you, know, you go to a school which doesn't really have any process of doing this, you're in a national school, um, all around the world, Education USA, which is funded by um, the US State Department, ha- has offices typically in U.S. embassies with people whose mm-hmm. job it is to advise you on this. So if, you, if as Jeremy suggests, you can't contact your, your school counsellor, try and contact the Education USA office in your country or in a nearby country, and they will potentially be able to steer you in the right direction as well. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, and the first thing a test prep company does is make very good friends with the, with the ladies at Education USA um, in terms of co-branding stuff. And again, they, they can't advertise one company over another directly. But they would sort of have phone numbers to, to pass you and say, hey, these guys are good, these guys maybe not so much. Fantastic. And I agree very much with, um, with what you're saying. Just because someone's been to a U.S. college, and, has, and it, certainly in my case, has got an American accent, doesn't necessarily mean they're better, better at this just because of that experience. As, as someone who didn't go to college in the States and is certainly not American, um, I sympathize with that problem quite a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, 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 you know, fortunately, I, I most, uh, probably everyone who's ever worked for me here in Singapore and finding teachers here is darn near impossible. Um, has at least gone to an American university. That's the one thing I, I, I insist on. Um, so, so some Singaporeans, some Malaysians, a guy from Hong Kong, but they've all at least been through the process of being there when they're 17 years old, understanding the test anxiety that they have to deal with. And I, I, I can't focus enough on test anxiety. We've actually added a component to our program of mindfulness to help kids calm down on test date and not 
clam up and, and just freeze and, and have bad performance on the day, as kids sadly are more prone to do over the years. Yeah. So, so part of the test prep process is not only knowing what to expect, knowing how to, to sort yourself out on test date, knowing what to eat, what not to eat, all that fun stuff, having the right size, right, right type of pencil, but to just walking in confident and thinking, okay, I, I got this. I know exactly what, what I'm going to get. It's just like the practice tests I took. If I perform up to expectations, I'm going to score this score, and then I'm going to be good. And then I worry about all the other things and maybe having a childhood. Yeah, yeah. And Joe, I just wanted to, to chuck in one question, which kind of, I guess, is a bit more specific to your, your context sure. over there. But the parental pressure on students to, to take these tests, you know, if you've got parents listening to the podcast, um, you know, what, what kind of feedback would you give to them about, you know, the impact that can have on students? I mean, most kids in a, it depends on the international school that they're in. Um, most international schools in the American system would give the kids a PSAT in 10th grade. And that, again, PSATs don't matter for anything. They're just a good dry run to see where you stand. But parents often equate the SAT with an O-level or an IB or an A-level. They just think if you just start studying for it in ninth grade, eventually you're going to get a perfect score. And that, that indeed is what they do up in China, Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Um, but I would say the best thing that the parents can do is step back and think, you know, the kids' score will improve naturally over time. There have been all kinds of studies saying that the kids that score naturally 50 points on the SAT – two or three points on the ACT, they score that much better just through one year of schooling. So no action required from, from 10th grade to 11th grade. Your score is going to be higher anyway. And you don't want that low score hanging like a millstone around your neck. Or if you go in and take it too early, you might have a score this low, and then you lose heart and lose confidence, and there's all those problems that that entails. So the, the, the best thing kind of Asian parents, I hate to, to, to sum them up, but most of my parents can, can do oftentimes is just to step back, take a deep breath, and think, well, SATs are important, but they're not certainly not the most important thing by any measure of the, of the imagination. And, and take, there's no harm in taking it a little bit later. Great stuff, fantastic, well, Jeremy. I, I mean, you and I both approach this that that having good relationships with schools is is fundamentally important. And a lot of the, the listeners of the podcast are our school counselors around the world. If someone wants to get get in touch with you, follow you on social media, that kind of stuff. You know, where are you? Where do you exist? And how can people contact you? Uh, the, the, the website's our main form of uh, communications. It's www.testacres-sg for Singapore.com. Um, so social media, we, we don't do a heck of a lot just because we're so busy. And we get most of our business through word of mouth anyway. Um, and if you want, want to contact me, I'm just at info at testacres-sg.com. And I check that all the time. Fantastic. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. Really fascinating insight on SAT and ACT prep, particularly in the, in the context of, of, of Singapore and Asia. So I appreciate your time. Now, clearly, some of what Jeremy discusses works in one context, but is potentially not applicable in others. My work takes me into contact with students based all around the world. And the way in which one student might prepare for the SAT or the ACT can differ greatly depending on where that student lives the availability of test centres, and what that student is aiming to use the test for. In the next episode in this mini-series, you'll hear a contrasting viewpoint as we look at ACT and SAT tests for students studying at schools in the United Kingdom. Thanks again for listening to the podcast, and please do look out for the second in this mini-series coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and get in touch with me via www.theuniversityguide.com if you have further questions.